Well, amen. Good morning, everybody. Glad you're here with us on another in our series on recharge as we get into summertime. I have to wonder if you've got vacations planned. I know many people are trying to get sort of caught up on some of their travel. They haven't been able to do much over the last year and a half. So now they're trying to make up for lost time. And I get it, sort of. Vacations can be fantastic. They can also be not so fantastic. Uh, Normal life is sort of figured out. Like, you know where to park, (laughs) you don't have to pay to do it, you know where the restaurants are, you know which ones you have to wait for, and which ones you don't. We went on a very small, kind of a day and a half sort of a thing pretty recently, and I came back uh, way more stressed than I left, because everything was difficult, and the thing that Google said Denny's was going to open at this time, well, it just didn't. And maybe that's a COVID thing, maybe it's not, but you're constantly having to improv and figure out another way to figure out something that in regular life maybe doesn't come up so much. There's times on vacation where I think if this is supposed to be rest, I think I'd rather be working. Like, I think I'd just rather have my normal life. Rest is integral. We're supposed to have it. We need it. But if that's supposed to be sort of the highest point of rest, the place where we really do recharge, well, it doesn't work very well. If that idea of recharge is not just spiritual disciplines, how do we pray, how do we read the scriptures, but is in fact, how do we recharge, have our souls energized by time with the Lord? We really are asking a question about rest. How do we rest well? And biblically, there's a word that's out there, Sabbath, that takes a minute to kind of figure out. But we're going to do it today, and I want us to think about it biblically. Old Testament, New Testament, I want us to try and understand the best way that we can recharge well so that we're honoring the Lord, we're following His ways, receiving the blessings for for obedience and doing what He calls us to do, and so that we've got those other six days to work well. And I do think for a lot of you, you understand the impulse, the desire to work better. When we say we have to rest... There's maybe a moment as you're reading scripture and thinking big thoughts about God where you say, well, why do we even have to rest? Wouldn't it be better if we didn't have to rest? Lord says, work six days, rest one. Here's another idea, Lord. What if I work seven? I could get way more done. What if I didn't have to sleep? I was in seminary. And the seminary professor, he's a New Testament professor, and if you're a New Testament scholar, there's just a lot to read, because there's obviously been a ton written about the New Testament. And this guy is trying his best to stay above water with all the recent scholarship and all the stuff that he's kind of in charge of knowing and being able to understand and then write about. And he talked with longing about another New Testament scholar he knew that suffered from insomnia. It was like a condition. The guy couldn't get past. He just didn't sleep. I mean, probably slept a little bit, otherwise you just die or whatever. But he didn't sleep much. And this guy was talking about, my professor was talking about this other guy, this other New Testament scholar, Pauline scholar, that didn't have to sleep. So he would just work during the day. He'd come home, put his kids to bed, and he'd just keep working. And he could do that all the time. And you could see the longing in this guy's eyes to not have to rest. I don't think insomnia is contagious. If it was, my professor might have tried to kiss this guy. Just to get a little bit of that magic so that he didn't have to rest. Why do we have to rest? God didn't have to build it that way. But he chose to. 
I remember growing up, the pastor that I had was a very big man. And when you were around him, he was always either smiling or frowning. Like he was always moving. He always was trying to get you to see something. He was always leading. And the times I was around him a little bit close, there was one time where I heard him say to somebody else, I got to raise a million dollars. I got to find a million dollars. Now, you might think that he's saying, I need to find a lot of money. But no, that was a church where he was actually saying, I need to find one million dollars. I don't know if you've ever been in that position. Some of you have. I haven't. And I have no idea how you would go about doing that. That seems like an impossible task. And that was his job. Like, that was on his to-do list that day. (laughs) Find a million dollars. I don't know how you do that. And he checked himself because he said that. And I was like, wow. And then he went, no, God has to find a million dollars. This is God's work. This is his deal. And in that moment, he made a shift that's pretty crucial to understanding what rest is and why God gave it. See, if you look in the Old Testament, you have a guy like Moses who's leading the people of Israel through a desert. And you have all the spiritual stuff that goes along with that, but you also just have the practical considerations. How do you feed a million people in a desert? Well, God did it. But it was on, he was the leader, Moses, so he could either take that on himself or he could see it a different way. When I am charged with the task of feeding you weekly, I have that same option. I can have the overwhelming anxiety and stress of thinking that your spiritual life in some way depends on this moment of a sermon or a place where the scripture is being spoken to you and that it's my primary task to be the guy that's trying to make that moment happen. And then, goes bad, goes great. The next morning, it's Monday, and there's another blank Google Doc waiting on something for the next week. You think about your own stress as you, we, but really, you have been tasked by Christ with taking the gospel to every man, woman, and child all over the globe. You feel the weight of the mandate of God. And he makes us sleep eight hours a night. (laughs) And he commands these days of rest. How do we rest with that level of important task before us? I think we've talked about this a little bit, but look at Luke 5, 15 and 16. If you have a copy of the scriptures, we're going to be bouncing around. We're talking about a big topic throughout the text. But in Luke 5, 15 and 16, that's where you can kind of flip your way open and, and maybe memorize these two verses. Where it says, but now, even more, the report about Jesus went abroad, and great crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. The ministry's going, and going well, lots of people, but what that means is really lots of work. You know, you get excited about lots of people being involved in something, but really what's happening is you're getting more tasks, more responsibility, more souls. And as it accelerated, and as his... Uh, load in some ways means Jesus. So he already has like a pretty big scope for what he's trying to do. But as his, his number of people that are, have claims on his time is literally in front of him growing, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. He would rest. He would rest in the Lord. 
So let's think briefly about the creation pattern of the Sabbath. If you've heard that word Sabbath before, maybe you've got a category for it, maybe you don't. Let's look at it biblically. There's a pattern in those first couple of chapters of Genesis where God tells us how creation was made. Not just how, which is very important, but some of the things that were there before we screwed it up. There are patterns in creation that have happened. They were good. God called them good before The serpent comes and the sin happens. We see in these creation moments, these early patterns of creation that God gave as a good gift, work. That God gave as a good gift, love and relationships. God gave as a good gift, enjoyment of the creation. Daily, he's seeing that it's good. You have to imagine that Adam and Eve are walking around going, wow. I mean, I don't have anything to compare this to, but... Wow, (laughs) enjoyment of God's creation. And before the fall, rest. This concept of rest, Genesis 2, 2 and 3, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now, that word rest there, when applied to God, matters. It's, It's different. We'll talk a little bit more about it in a second. But it's the concept, it's the pattern that he gives of rest. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God never stops. God always works. He's always doing. He's the fountain of all being. If he stopped for a second, we would all just disappear. I mean, he, he does continue and being God, totally separate from us, He sets a different pattern for the way that we live and operate, the way that we have our being. He is independent, but we are dependent. And he's given us that as part of this creation pattern. In the Old Testament, he fills that out more fully under the Mosaic Law. In Exodus 20, 8 through 10, so part of those Ten Commandments, which if you're ever looking for the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 is one of the places we have those listed. It says in verses 8 through 11, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you're going to labor and you're going to do your work then. But on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work. You, your sons, your daughters, your male servants, your female servants. Sorry, guys. You can't even have your slaves working. That was supposed to be a joke. Do you have slaves? If you have slaves, please let me know. We need to talk about that. Female servants, male servants. They're not supposed to work either. That was supposed to be a joke. Okay. (laughs) Your livestock, the sojourner who's within your gates, for for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. He's saying, here's the law, Sabbath. And he's, he is grounding that concept of the Sabbath in the creation ordinance of six days work, one day rest. And it was serious business. In the Old Testament, we even have a story about somebody getting the capital punishment. They were killed for their breaking of the Sabbath. Now, that guy was doing it in a very flagrant way. He wasn't just trying to break the Sabbath. He was trying to curse God. And there was a lot behind it if you read the story. But the principle stands. This is serious stuff. In the New Testament, it seems different. As you read through the Gospels, it seems like Jesus plans his miracles for the Sabbath. 
It seems like the only time he's really interested in doing it is on the Sabbath with Pharisees watching because they got very upset and they considered miracles to be work and they got very upset when he did that on the Sabbath. They considered it Sabbath breaking. Now that's the height of hypocrisy and Jesus is showing them that. But there's also something happening here. He's also broadening out. There's, there is a fulfillment of the Sabbath that's taking place. And the apostles teach us about it later in the New Testament where Colossians 2 says, Gospel, above verse 16, therefore, it's talking about the gospel. He saved us by his grace. We are now something new. We've been made new, though we're sinners and don't deserve anything. By his grace, we've been transformed, adopted, made new. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You read through Hebrews, and it's going to tell you this same kind of concept over and over and over again. It's the idea that there was a shadow, and then there's a substance. There is a bud, and then there's a bloom. There's a thing in seed form, a thing there to teach, to point, to give the outline of, and then there's the fullness. I'm sitting and I see a shadow that comes over me. I can see the outline of what that thing is, but I can get a lot more information if I turn and see the substance of what that thing is. Jesus has come as the substance of what the Old Testament was teaching. He is the fulfillment, the bloom, the thing that fulfills totally what was happening in all this Old Testament stuff. The Sabbath seems to be part, according to these verses, of what was fulfilled, what was changed, along with the festivals and the dietary laws. You read through Acts, you get into Acts 3 and 4, I think, you're going to see where Peter is receiving these new things about the dietary laws. These things are fulfilled. These things have now been changed. Certainly, we move from a Saturday concept of the end of the week, the last day of creation, to a Sunday. We're worshiping right now on Sunday. I don't know if you noticed. Sunday is because Jesus died on a Friday, but he was raised up. The new creation begins on Sunday. That transition takes place. Why? Because of what Christ has done. Because he has fulfilled. We go from creation being to compl- completed on a Saturday to in this new covenant where on Sunday new creation begins. So this concept of a Sabbath is something given and something good, but something flexible. It's something that is no longer required in the same way as it was during Moses' day. Yet, it is a law of creation, just like sleep or our need for love or our need for food. So it's still there. It's still good. But we can still ask why. And I think in understanding why, we'll be more motivated to actually do it. We need limitations in order to remember our dependence on God. Whenever you remove limitations, you automatically start to assume really big things about yourself and move from, I am a person created in the image of God and dependent on Him for my existence, to, maybe I'm God. That seems like a silly thing to move from one place to the other, but it's what we do all the time. 
Limitations help us to remember that he's God and I'm not. When you remove limitations, you're tempted to think that you're God and he's not. We see this in popular literature, literature, popular culture all the time. Ask the nerds. It doesn't matter if you're talking about DC. Are you with me? Okay. When I say something that's silly and it's like five, six, and then it makes me think you're not listening. Stay with me. This is more important. The, the real stuff is more important than the silly stuff. But when you look at any popular culture stuff about super anything, whether it's Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, DC, Marvel, I don't care, Spider-Man, the question is, when these things, these people get their superpowers and become more, become greater than, are they allowed to be God? didn't see the Snyder Cut or whatever. I've not watched those movies. I don't have the time, I guess. Four or five hours for the Snyder Cut. But there was a question in there about whether or not Superman's God. Certainly the X-Men. Should we rule the humans? That's definitely part of the Harry Potter thing. Voldemort should, the wizards should rule the normal people. Why? Because you take away a limitation and they assume godhood. You take away a reminder of dependence and you assume independence. In our lives, we're doing that all the time. It's as simple as running away from rest. One guy, Christopher Ash, wrote a really great, really short book called Zeal Without Burnout. You can't write a book about burnout and make it long. You have to make it short because you want burned out people to read it. And it's a very short book. It's very helpful. And he says, in some ways, the worst thing that can happen is that you get away with not resting. God in his mercy gives you strength for that extra commitment. You get through the following week with plenty of energy, and you begin to think, subconsciously perhaps, that somehow you have evolved into some slightly superhuman creature, that your fellow Christians need their weekly days off, poor ordinary mortals that they are, but you know you find that you can manage without. Or can you? You take away single limitation or you, you assume that you have superseded some single limitation and your pride begins to run. You ever been driving on I-80 coming back from Park City and you see those big gravel truck pits? Ooh, do yourself a favor and Google some of the like security cam footages of those trucks running in to those gravel pits. They're there because sometimes trucks get going so fast with so much momentum and they don't have brakes anymore. So they can go off the side of the mountain or they can go into this pea gravel and it's crazy, it's explosive, but nobody dies. Those pea gravel pits are there as a warning. Ride the brake, slow down. We're being taught biblically that we have to seek out to remember that dependence. If that's why we need the Sabbath, let's look at how we take the Sabbath. I'm nervous to preach on this because it's already hard enough to get people to volunteer. If I start telling them about the Sabbath, they'll say, oh, I'd love to, but biblically, I don't know that I can. Well, okay. What the Sabbath is teaching us is six days on, one day off. So if you're being pretty legit about six days on, then we can talk more about one day off. But before you get going on Sabbath, remember that while God does give us rest as a check against self-reliance, He also gives us work in the proportion of six to one, 
as a check against that total self... uh, Oh, I had such a good word for this. Self-indulgence. There we go. Self-reliance or self-indulgence. For the self-reliant, the strong and powerful proud, he gives rest. He gives Sabbath. He gives humility. sprinkles a little humility on top or he just totally wrecks their world with humility. But for the self-indulgent, for the one who sets themselves up as God, creating as the whole of the world, they see the whole of the world as just a place for them to get and receive pleasure. For them, he has given work. For the self-indulgent, he's given self-control. Man, if you've, if you've made yourself into some kind of cold and hard thing because you work and work and work and you don't care and you don't love maybe as much anymore, you've gotten into this very proud sort of self-reliance, he's given you the warmth of humility. But if you're somebody who's over here and you're just really self-indulgent and you've got warmth, you're kind of like a jelly. You don't really have much structure to your world, but you've got a lot of fun. For you, he has given some of the firmness the vine, the, a vine needs a trellis. He's given you some of the structure of self-control. And this, this Sabbath pattern reminds us the other way, just as it does, about being uh, dependent on Him. So, now that we must do it, how do we do it? Is it supposed to be like the Pharisees in the New Testament where they wouldn't walk a certain amount of uh, paces on the Sabbath? David was telling me today, you're supposed to tie your kids up so they can't go running around on the Sabbath because you can only take so many days, so many steps on the Sabbath. No. I think a good, helpful way to see the Sabbath, not as a law, but as a helpful suggestion, is from one author who said a biblical Sabbath is a 24-hour block of time in which we stop work, enjoy rest, Practice delight and contemplate God. And that's where this takes on a whole different meaning. Remember, when the things got bigger and harder and more impressive and more intense, Jesus would get away more. He would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So, how do we do that? One, stop work. Well, that's not that hard. It's more about the strategy of saying, I'm going to really work on six days in order that can take a day. And again, none of this is a law. We've been freed by this. Some of you are working three different jobs and some of them overlap on every single day and I get it. Please don't be burdened by one more law. I'm not doing that. But we are built with some requirement to rest. And so, on the Sabbath, whether it's a whole day or you have to start with just a couple hours on Saturday or whatever, stop working. Plan for Sabbath. Get it done the other six days. Do some yard work on a weeknight. Get ready for that sixth day, seventh day. Stop work. Enjoy rest. Do you really know what you enjoy doing? If I ask you, what do you enjoy doing? Do you have a ready answer? These people over here, the jelly, self-indulgent people, they got a lot of answers. But the self-reliant people, the people that the Sabbath is supposed to really help, may not have an answer. If I say, what do you like to do? And you go, ah, work. Well, no, that's a bad answer for this question. 
What do you enjoy doing? Is it a book? Is it a walk? Is it cooking a meal you've not cooked before? Is it taking your kids and watching them play sports? Is it going with your kids up on a hike? Is it, is it, is it gardening? What is it? What do you enjoy doing? Yeah, if it's heroin, you know, don't that. But if it's some good thing that God's given, enjoy. Enjoy. It's not rest that just means you have to sit still. Enjoy something that God's given. If your job, like a lot of us, is, is kind of on the white collar, sit down and look at a screen side, then that joy, that rest needs to take place maybe outside, something more physical. And of course, vice versa. So you stop working, you enjoy rest, and then you start practicing delight. And these second two categories are what I really want you to focus on because I think this is what we don't do much in our own versions of rest. But practice delight. It says in Genesis 131 that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. But he saw everything that he had made and assessed that it was very good. I am asking you to practice that. Okay, I'm going to take some time on the Sabbath to hang out with my kids and play cards with them. But it's not because I need to say that I've done something with my kids. In this moment, I'm enjoying my kids. What do they think is silly? What do I think is silly about them? What a blessing. What an interesting thing. If it's taking walks, maybe take a walk along the same kind of path on a couple of different days so that you can watch as the flowers bloom. You can see the little dogs running up to the fence and and start to kind of get an idea of the world around you and just stop and kind of breathe it in. They talk about stopping to smell the roses. That's kind of what we mean here. He's made this beautiful creation. He called it very good. Stop and enjoy it. If you do this weekly, you'll find that level of enjoyment bleeding over into the other six days. But the headline to this concept of Sabbath, and if you say, absolutely no way that I'm going to take a day and do all this, great. It's not a law. But you do need to do this. Taking strategic, planned time to contemplate God. When Jesus is going away to these desolate places, he's not then fishing. Which, you know, for his class of people, that was probably work. But for a lot of you, that's rest. He wasn't going to a desolate play to play, place to play disc golf. He's going to a desolate place to pray, to contemplate God, to take a moment and realize he's working, I'm not. So I am not my profession. I'm a child. I'm not a pastor. I'm an adopted child of God whom he has given pastoral duties. But that's not who I am. It says in John 5 that God is always working. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working till now, and I am working. God is working. He's keeping the sun rising and setting. That's his job, and he's doing it. Taking a Sabbath is the moment when you realize that he's God and you're not. 
And as you go through that contemplation, then you're going to start to understand the hypocrisy of people like us saying in our culture, okay, we've got the gospel. That's a huge advantage over religiosity. How do we look grace-based? I ask that question all the time. How do we make Hope Church look grace-based? What would, what would grace-based people look like? Because we want to look like that. Well, dude, be grace-based and then just see what you look like. <laughs> the self-reliance of people that are out there earning their favor before God can't be our way of working within the church. We do have to be dependent on Him. We do have to be grace-based. And if you're saying, man, I'm glad he's preaching to other people, let me just ask you, are you angry all the time? If you're angry all the time, the, the books I'm reading on some of this stuff say that part of being angry is declaring, I am right. And so I'm defending something because I'm right. And so I've got anger as this God-given sort of like fight or flight kind of uh, emotion to help me fight for what is right. Well, are you right? To be angry all the time, are you right? Maybe you've become self-reliant and you're right because you've declared yourself right. Allow the Sabbath to undercut that pride. Anger has a place. But if you're angry all the time, I've, I've got questions. Are you scared all the time? We talked about doing that stop exercise where you ask how you're feeling. Is the word fear coming up a lot? Well, if you're scared all the time, what you're saying with that emotion is, I'm out of control. And you see that as a negative. Well, the Sabbath is going to help you to remember that, of course, you're out of control. Of course, you can't control whether or not your body gets sick. Of course, you can't control whether or not your children do A, B, or C. Of course. But God's in control. A guy named Ed Welch, anything he's written, I would highly recommend. In a book called Running Scared, he says... Here's where fear is a door to spiritual reality. Fear suggests that authentic humanness was never intended to be on its own, autonomous, self-reliant. Humans are needy by design. Let's look at what's underneath all of this. Are you proud? See, the Sabbath is going to help you to take that moment and say, I'm not the center of the universe he is. Southern writer Flannery O'Connor, she had a prayer journal that they've published, and she said, Lord, she's talking to God, it's a prayer, you are the slim crescent of a moon that I see, and myself is the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing all the moon. I don't know you, God, because I'm in the way. Hey, if that's you, Repent. And a way to build that repentance into your life is this Sabbath. Retread this old path and let's see what happens to a grace-based community. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do ask this morning that you would teach us the right way to apply your teaching. We don't want to get legalistic. We don't want to get real judgmental of each other. We do want to be dependent on you. So teach us how to do that, Father. Teach us how to do that within the new covenant for your glory and for the grace of your people. We love you, sir. In your holy name we pray.